man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. two weeks, we have been looking at this paragraph of Scripture, the first ten verses, and uh, in it we first of all saw the, the message that Paul was concerned to protect, and that is the message of uh, our freedom in Christ, that we are not bound and shackled to the law, we're not shackled to religion, we're not shackled to some system of merit whereby we earn or, or purchase a place with God, but rather we have freedom in Christ, a freedom to love him and to worship him, serve and adore him, and that the gospel is a gospel of a heart set free. And so that was the message that we saw, and then last week we saw the mission, and Paul talked about the mission that he had been given to preach to Gentiles, to those who did not have a, um, uh, a background in the Jewish scriptures, who were not a part of the Jewish uh, tradition. And so he preached primarily to those who sort of needed a running start uh, into what God had done in Christ. Um, and then Peter had been given a mission to um, the Jews, to those who did have a background in the uh, tradition of Israel. And uh, we saw there that we all have a mission to proclaim Christ where we are living, where God has sent us. We all go to different places, but it's a place of God's design uh, where we would share Christ. And so in this passage of Scripture so far, uh, we have seen um, the message and the mission. Uh, this morning, I want for us to think about the manifestation of the gospel. How does it work out in life in just one of the little ways? Um, what has gone on here is that Paul has met with the leaders in Jerusalem, and um, they've shared the gospel one with another. They've realized, yeah, we're preaching the same thing. We don't need to add anything to Paul. We don't need to change what he's doing. And uh, so they're, they're together on that page, and you can sort of just feel revival breaking out as uh, there's a oneness, a right hand of fellowship extended, and, and they're there together. And so they come down to verse 10. And Paul says, I, I shared the gospel. I told them what I was preaching. We're all together. They added nothing to me. They saw we had a mission. They had a mission. We, we shook hands on it. We, we embraced. We were one. We were together. And then in verse 10, he says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. It just sort of pops out there. It just sort of jumps out at you. We're, we're talking about all this, this gospel stuff and spiritual ideas and, and, and the theology of it. And then uh, uh, Paul said, but they asked me to remember the poor. It just sort of jumps out. Now, I want to reassure you, this is not going to be a sermon about money because I know that bothers you. Uh, I know that if this is a sermon about money, you're, you're saying, oh, why did I come to church today? This would have been a great day to visit mom and dad, go to their church or something. You know? You know, and I just know that money bothers you. I, I realize that. Um, we had a business meeting on, on a Wednesday night. Though, oh, this was years ago. We were still in the gym. And uh, we had the meeting, and it happened to be that somebody visited that Wednesday night. I don't know why it is, but nobody visits on a Wednesday night unless it's a business meeting. But uh, anyway, th this person sat through the meeting, you know, and uh, 
and, and in the course of that meeting, for some reason, uh, we, we voted to send $5,000 to, uh, I think it was a church in Latvia or something. We either bought the roof or bought the building. I, I forget which it was. And, and we sent another $3,000 to Iraq to buy shoes for children. And, and I think we spent another $1,500 to, uh, uh, to buy and, and to build a, a handicap ramp for one of our sister Baptist churches here in our association. So in, in the course of the meeting, we voted to give away and to send to other ministries somewhere between eight dollars and $10,000. And after the meeting, the guy came up to me and he said, I'm not coming back. I said, well, why not? He said, all you people ever do is talk about money. And I thought, you know, you can't win for losing. <laughs> so uh, I know that money bothers you. I, and I know that you don't, don't uh, you know, that, that, that's really tough on you. So uh, this is not about money. What I'd like for us to think about this morning is the injunction that Paul embraced to remember the poor. And then the phrase that follows, he says, that's the very thing I was eager to do. That's what I wanted to do. That's what excited me about this. So uh, that, that's what we're looking at. We want to understand what he meant by remembering the poor and why he was eager to do that. Now, to understand why they asked him this, we need to go back into the history of the church a little bit. Uh, if you have a, a scripture text in front of you and can manage it and, and flip and roll and punch and push, um, I want to look at Acts 11, 27 to 30. Look at Acts 11, 27. As you know, Acts is the book that tells us about the opening years of the church, the work of the Holy Spirit and, and uh, getting the gospel uh, message off the ground and, and, and to uh, share it and, and move it out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Um, that's, that's what we're reading about. And in the course of that, uh, this is what happens. This is Acts eleven twenty-seven. It says, Now in those days... Prophets came down from Jerusalem. By the way, you always come down from Jerusalem and go up to Jerusalem. Uh, that's simply a, a matter of respect for the, the city. And so prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius, and we have other uh, historical evidence of the famine that took place in this time. It would uh, roughly be in the A.D. 45, 6, or 7 region, right in the mid-40s A.D. So we know when this happened, and, and we have it uh, from many sources uh, and here in Scripture. So this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Uh, there are a number of scholars who think that this journey of Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, delivering this uh, sort of relief collection for the famine, is what Paul was talking about in Galatians 2. That he and Barnabas came, evidently Titus as well, and they came with this offering, and it was at that time he met with the, the leadership in Jerusalem. Uh, the scripture says here that it was by a revelation given to uh, Agabus, who stood up and he said, there's, there's going to be a famine, 
and evidently the church in Jerusalem was going to be uh, suffering through this for many reasons. One, that uh, a lot of the folks in the Jerusalem church, you recall this, had sold their lands and their property that whatever excess they had, they'd already uh, given it to the church so the church would have the undergirding supporting funds for the spread of the gospel. So a lot of the reserves had already been invested in the work of the gospel. Also, uh, Jerusalem was, a, was a, a, an attractive place for a lot of folks to come and just to camp out and to worship God. And so there, there were a lot of things going on. And for that reason, the church in Jerusalem was going to be particularly hard hit by this famine. The Christians in Antioch, as soon as they heard about that, they said, we've got to do something for our brothers in Christ. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering, and we need to do something about it. And so as each had the ability, they collected the funds, and they gave it to Barnabas, who had come uh, to them from Jerusalem, and they sent Paul with them, because Paul and Barnabas really got along well, and they sent them, and they said, you take the money to Jerusalem, and that's what Paul did. Now, if that's what Galatians 2 is talking about, then in the course of things, they talked about the uh, the gospel message, and they, and they got together, and they, and they, and they uh, uh, shared the, the message they were preaching. They reaffirmed their mission and their ministry and the message that they were doing. And at the end of that, they said, well, just don't forget the poor. And Paul said, not only will I not forget them, that's what I'm all about. That's why I'm here. That's what we've been doing. That's, that's what we are here for. So this famine relief effort was in the background of what was being said when they said only this, just remember the poor. And that's in the background of Paul saying, that's what I wanted to do. This famine relief effort was not just a, a, a one-time thing with Paul. It was really a part of his ministry for the rest of his life. We see it reflected in, in uh, several of his writings. We'll look at one of them in just a moment. Uh, but even when um, he came to Jerusalem and he was arrested and then sent to Rome, the reason he had come to Jerusalem that time was to bring famine relief funds back to the church in Jerusalem. So it was uh, a, an effort on his part, the support of struggling Christian brothers and sisters. It was a part of his ministry throughout his entire ministry. So when the uh, leaders, the apostles said to Paul, remember the poor, he said, yeah, that, that's what I'm about. That's where we are on this. Now, we we see it reflected in other writings of Paul. Uh, one more page flipping or thing turning, whatever you're doing. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now in this passage, uh, Paul is going to talk about the collection. Um, what you need to know, well, actually in, here in 2 Corinthians, Paul spends two chapters on collecting money to help the poor in Jerusalem to help the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Spends chapters 8 and 9 on this very subject. Uh, what you need to know is that he's writing to the Corinthian church, who's sort of in southern Greece, and he's going to write to them about the Macedonian believers. That would be sort of in northern Greece. And so Paul's been in the north in Macedonia. He's gotten the... Um, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the relief offering there. He's come, uh, getting ready to come down into Corinth, and he says, I want you to be ready with your offering as well so everything can, can go smoothly and we'll be all ready and set to go. So that's, that's the background. We look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I want you to look at verses 1 to 5. Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity 
on their part. Um, this is the kind of verses that confuses the stew out of prosperity gospel preaching. Uh, this verse, you know, the prosperity gospel is the idea of if you believe in Jesus and, and you, you give your money, that God has to bless you a hundredfold. And so if you give uh, $10, God has to bless you a hundredfold, thousand dollars. And uh, so, uh, you know, you, you can't outgive God, and God's going to just give you more than you ever had before. And so uh, plant your seed faith now. Send in your check for $10. $10. Uh, make it 100 and you'll get the... Okay, you do the math on this. Paul says, no, these Macedonian Christians experienced the grace of God, and here's what happened. They ran into great affliction and suffering because they were believers in Jesus Christ. They ran into, they collided with a world that hates Jesus, that hates the gospel, that doesn't want to hear a message about sin that needs a sacrifice, doesn't want to hear about the plight of man is our rebellion against God. Just, just doesn't want to hear it. So as a result of the grace of God coming to the Macedonian churches, they experience affliction. They experience persecution. And Paul says also a part of that grace experience is extreme poverty. He says, but instead of withdrawing, what, which is what we would do, right? We would start cutting back. The affliction comes, we better pull in the resources and, and build up the, the reserves. The poverty comes, we've got to cut back. You know, we've got to find out places where we, we, we don't have to spend money. We need to take care of the home front. We pull back during affliction and poverty. Paul says these Macedonian Christians, when they experienced affliction, they were filled with an abundance of joy. And when they were filled with the experience of poverty, it actually resulted in a wealth of generosity. It resulted in their wanting to give more. It was almost like these Macedonian Christians had kind of uh, met Jesus in their lives. It was almost like they had met Jesus who was poor, who had no place to lay his head, who, when he died, had a coat on his back. They cast lots to see who would get it. It's almost like they had met Jesus who had told them, look, here's how the world is going to know you love me by the way you love and take care of one another. It was almost like they had listened to Jesus who had said, whenever you see a brother, one of the least of these who are my brothers, whenever you see one of the least of these in prison and, and naked and hungry and thirsty, and you go out and you meet that need, then you are honoring me and you are serving me. It's almost like these Macedonian Christians were taking the grace of God in Jesus Christ seriously so that when they heard about the need in Jerusalem, they didn't think about their own need. They simply thought about the Lord Jesus Christ Christ and what he had done for them and said we cannot help but be invested and involved in sharing this grace and this love and this mercy with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so because they had met Jesus, because they knew him, it resulted in a generosity and taking care of those in need. Verse 3 in this 2 Corinthians 8, 3, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. They didn't do some kind of calculation. What's the least we can get away with? They rather said, what's the, what's the most I can give? How, how can I honor Christ? Okay, verse 4, begging us, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They were begging us for the right to give. I mean, this is nuts. 
It's almost like somebody would stand up in the back and say, Pastor, could you suspend the sermon for a moment? I want us to take another offering. It's almost like somebody saying, you know, the music's been wonderful and the sermon was great, but my favorite time in the service is when I get to give, when I get to give and honor Christ in the offering time. And it's almost like somebody says, uh, it walks in and says, I, I, I wonder when the offering is. I want to make sure I'm ready for that. They were begging for the opportunity to give. Evidently, they saw something more happening than just the transfer of funds from their pocket to somebody else's pocket. Evidently, they saw something vital going on in their spiritual walk with Christ when they were generous towards the poor in Jerusalem. So evidently, they knew something we didn't, but they were begging for the opportunity, the favor of taking part. And this, verse 5, this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God, they gave themselves to us. So Paul says, I, I just want you to know about these Macedonian Christians. They seem to have gotten the message that this wasn't about money. This was about worship and adoration of the Savior. This isn't about, you know, uh, can we give to just, you know, sort of be helpful. This was about, can I give? Let me give so I can worship and adore and glorify the Father and the Son. So that's where they were headed in this. And Paul said, I, I just wanted you um, to know that. Now, in verse 9, in chapter 9, if you look at chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, just very quickly. Verse 6, and in the intervening verses, he's basically making the same points with, with a few uh, um, additional details. But in, in verse 6, Paul says this, still talking about the relief effort for helping the poor. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is where you stand up and you say, finally, we got the prosperity gospel. Finally, we got it here. If I give a little bit of money, God will give me uh, more money back. And, and if I give a great deal of money, God will just bountifully give me money. My, my, my task in all this is to give so much money that God, I just bankrupt God as he's trying to give me back a hundredfold, a thousandfold, whatever it is. Sounds like prosperity gospel. Folks, this verse has nothing to do with that. Here's what he's talking about. The person who invests his life and sows the life of faith in Christ and love and worship and adoration for Christ and obedience to Christ, that life sowed sparingly will only know the grace of God in a sparse way. But when you invest your life entirely, it's not talking about money. It's talking about who you are. It's talking about your, your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength invested in who Christ is. The one who invests bountifully, sows bountifully by faith. That life reaps the bounty of the grace of God. So Paul says, understand that if you treat this on the, what's the least amount I can give, the least amount I can be involved. He says, when you are doing that, understand that you are blocking yourself off from really knowing and loving Christ. That's what he's talking about. So if you reap sparingly, you re uh, sow sparingly, reap sparingly, sow bountifully, reap bountifully. Verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, 
You know, I have a lot of confidence in God. I really do. See, some of you think this is a sermon about giving. You still do. You still think this is a sermon that uh, the point of it is to try to get you to give more money, put more money in the offering plate. You really think that, and, and you're just dead wrong. Here's the deal. I have a lot of confidence in God. Paul says, look, everyone gave what was in his own heart. I just happen to believe that if you meet Jesus Christ and you see how beautiful he is, you will fall head over heels in love with him. And there will be no limit to what you will invest and give to him and to honor and to glorify him. That's why we don't preach money. We don't do fundraisers. We preach Christ and the beauty of the Savior. And when you respond to the Savior, the rest of it takes care of itself. This is true in every area of life. I mean, I've got a very good temperance sermon. By the way, you ought not to drink. I'm just going to tell you that. And, and, you know, trust me on this. I'm right. You're wrong. (laughs) But here's the deal. Just look at Jesus. Fall in love with Jesus. Ask yourself, how can I love him more? How can I love him more? How can I love him more? In the area of, of alcohol, how can I love Jesus more in what I put in my mouth? And I trust God to tell you what the answer is. I don't need to. God will tell you what the answer is. That's true of service. It's true of tithing. But here's the point. Paul said they gave not, uh, uh, they gave as each decided in his heart, as each was moved by the Holy Spirit of God. Suddenly their giving is not a financial transaction, but it is a relational posture with God. It's an expression of their personal knowledge of Christ. It's it's not just a matter of, well, he gave that much, he gave that much. Okay, I'll split the difference and give that much. It's rather I know Jesus and I love Jesus and how can I honor and praise and glorify Jesus. And God put it on their heart what to give. And that's fine. Paul says that's that's, that's the way it's supposed to work. He says not reluctantly or under compulsion, not as a matter of religiosity, not as a matter of trying to, check off the, the, the morality merit badge uh, and, you know, and try to elevate myself in, the, in you know, some kind of higher level of Christian. He says it, it, this wasn't a, a manipulative kind of thing. Folks, the emblem of the gospel is a cross, not a clipboard. It's a cross where Jesus died for us, not a list of laws that we can check. Yes, I've done this, that, and the other. Okay. So he said that it was not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves somebody who, when they're giving, they're just laughing about it. You know, this is marvelous. Look, I've discovered something about being a grandparent. I've discovered a lot of things, but here's one of them. One of the greatest delights Debbie and I have is buying stuff for our grandchildren. But being wise grandparents, we don't buy too much. Okay, I'll let you in on it. Here's what happens. Debbie controls the money. She buys whatever she wants. She never tells me how much it is. <laughs> and I'm telling you this. We never sit around and say, you know, we bought too much. We spent too much. Now I feel really bad. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? It's a joyful, cheerful thing. Why? Because you love them like crazy. 
you love them like crazy. And when you love Jesus, and when you love the people Jesus loves, when you love the poor the way Jesus loves them, when, you, when you're invested in the lives of the needy the way Jesus invested his life in the needy, then it is joy. It is joy. And God loves a cheerful giver because that's a giver who understands that it's not a money thing, it's a spiritual thing to be giving. And so um, it, God loves a cheerful giver. Now, verse 8, this is, this is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. Now, most of us want to take that verse and say, oh, well, this, this says that, that, that I, I, I can do whatever needs to be done. God will always give me the grace that I need to be done. That's true. That's absolutely true. Look at the context. It's about giving to the poor for the glory of God. What is it God enables us to do? What is it God gives us all grace so that we have all sufficiency to do everything that he, that he asks of us? What is it that we can do? We can be ridiculously generous. We can give laughingly, cheerfully. We can give out of a heart that is compelled by love of Christ and not by just some sense of social obligation. That's what we can do. I'm telling you, it's almost like Paul knew Jesus. I mean, didn't Jesus say, why are you concerned about what you're going to wear? And, you know, why are you anxious for anything? This Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, Matthew 6. He says, why do you concern yourselves and worry about, what am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? What if I don't have enough? He said, look at the, the birds of the air. Look at the grass of the field. Look at the lilies. They get by just fine. God knows exactly what he needs. He provides for them. How much more he's going to provide for you. You don't need to worry. Because God will enable you to be ridiculously generous and giving as the Spirit leads you out of your love for Christ. So, so you know, God, God enables us. He makes all of this uh, possible. Not as a matter of, of earning points in heaven again, but simply as a matter of glorifying God. Um, you remember the old churches? I, I don't remember. I had to read about this in history books. But, but in, the, in the old churches, the way they funded the church was you rented a pew. Any of you read about this? You know about this? Bert, you used to rent a pew? <laughs> no, no, you read about it. You heard about it. Okay. <laughs> but what you would do is at the, at the beginning of the year, you would, you would give so much money to the church, the church would take your name, put it on the side of the pew. That was your pew. You, that's where you sat. And uh, if anybody else sat there and they hadn't paid for it, you, you, you could come in and tell them to leave. And everybody, yeah, that's okay. Folks, you're not going to rent a pew in heaven. You're not buying a seat in heaven. You, you, you will never be able to give enough to earn what's in store for us, given to us graciously by the Father. So it's not an act of religion. It's an act of worship. It's an act of responding to the grace of God in Christ Jesus. So that's, that's, so that, that's sort of the, um, the background. Paul said, I'm, I'm a part of that ministry. That it connects me with believers around the world. It, it connects me with what Christ is doing in their lives. It, it makes me a part of, of, of the grace of God flowing into the lives of others. And, you know, it's just a great thing. Now, with that as the background, I think it tells us why he phrases this as he does. We're back to Galatians 2.10. You thought I'd forgotten that. Only they asked us to remember the poor. Remember the poor. You know, just 
things started clicking Paul's mind. He says, they, they asked me to remember the people of God. They asked me to remember the poor. They asked me to remember the suffering. They asked me to remember the needy. They asked me to be like Jesus. That's the very thing I'm eager to do. That's exactly what I want to do. I want to be like him. And so when they asked me to remember the poor, I was eager, eager to remember the poor. Now, there's, a, there's, there's talk, you may have heard it, uh, talk these days about income inequality, um, you know, the, the rich get rich, the poor getting poor, the middle class is being wiped out. And, and I, I'm going to let economists argue that. It, it, you know, pick your, your book, pick your, your, your uh, um, uh, economist. You, you, can, you can find somebody to say whatever you want. Okay. But the idea is that, you know, some people are filthy rich and some people are, are, are in abject poverty. Here's what I want to tell you. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican, a Libertarian or an Independent. Whatever you tell me about the poor, you're going to be right. Because it's a bitter truth of what everybody's saying. And it doesn't matter if you say, well, let's see, the Republicans should be on this side. No, let's be the Democrats. No, no, no it's the House of Representatives, Democrats over here. Okay. You could come up with a plan. You'd come up with a plan that would solve the problem. Not only solve the problem, but preserve freedom and dignity and the, and the free market system and you know, all those other things you're interested in. You can come up with a great plan for that. You haven't solved the problem that Paul's talking about. And my Democratic friends, welcome to the party. Uh, uh, you, know, you can come up with an answer. So, you know, here, here's, here's the problem, that, you know, this income inequality, and it's terrible, and we've got too many poor people, and we need to help the poor, and need to help the poor. Folks, look, let's say our government, <laughs> and like this is likely, but let's say our government had come up with a plan to not only take money out of the pockets of the rich, but make them happy that it's happening, and had given money to the poor, and had not only done so, but had done so in a way that wouldn't enslave the poor to poverty. Let us suppose the government had come up with a perfect plan for dealing with poverty and with the poor in our nation. Let us suppose the government had come up with that perfect plan and everybody had voted for it, the, the president signed off on it, the Supreme Court said it was constitutional. So we have it in place, we have this perfect plan to deal with the poor, the government's gonna take care of the poor. Folks, you're not off the hook. You are not off the hook. Because our calling to be generous to the poor comes out of our relationship with Christ, not out of our politics. And even if every poor person on the planet were taken care of by the government, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have an obligation to be generous to the hurting and the needy. Still, as an act of worship, as an act to glorify God. Okay? So that's why Paul says, I'm eager to do this. I'm eager to do it because that's how people will see Jesus in me. That's, that's how we'll, we'll, we'll proclaim that he's Lord of my life. And so if you thought this was a money sermon, uh, you, you're just dead wrong. If, if it were a money sermon about how to, uh, you know, increase the offerings of the church, it would be a sermon on tithing. It would be a sermon on stewardship. This isn't. This is a sermon on the poor and our obligation under the grace of God to take care of the poor. That's, that's what we're talking about. So here, here's what I want to ask you to do. Do it this week. Start looking for opportunities to be cheerfully generous.
to someone in need. Okay? I, I don't know what that looks like. I really don't. Um, I, and, and that's not to that, that's not say, you know, figure out a way to give more money to the church. That, 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 that's almost not in the ballpark right now. Here's what we're talking about. Find a child who needs support. Find an agency that you trust. Maybe you want to obligate yourself to take care of that child. Find a program, find a charity that, that deals with the poor in a responsible way. And I, you know, Debbie and I, we give uh, to work up in Baltimore. And uh, find somebody like that and just give them a gift. Out of the blue, just send them a gift. You know, you'll be on their mailing list forever, but that's okay. You know, <laughs> give them a gift. It might be something as silly and simple as the next time you're at a restaurant and you're figuring out what kind of tip you're going to leave the wait staff. And here's what you're doing. You're saying, well, let's see, I didn't like the service, didn't smile, didn't look me in the eye, didn't bring the water when I wanted, the food wasn't well done, you know, ah, they don't deserve a tip. I only tip for good service. You do know that most wait staff is paid minimum wage, don't you? And you do know that they are counting on the tips. That's a part of the deal when they were hired. That they're being, that they're, they're counting on generous people. So I'm telling you, not, don't, you know, as you're figuring out the gratuity. I mean, if you're upset about the service, go talk to the manager or something. But, you know, for that person who is struggling through life, it's not an easy job. I couldn't do it. You know, maybe you would just want to be a little bit generous on the tip. I mean, on and on it goes. Just, just let the Holy Spirit of God be creative and challenge you to be cheerfully generous to someone in need in some venue. Because the call of the gospel, the manifestation of the gospel that Paul talks about here in Galatians is that, um, that expression of concern and investment of resources for the poor. I mean, th this is the way God has always worked. Let me, let me close with this. In Leviticus chapter, um, I think it's 23. Close enough. Just take my word for it. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22. There's something called the law of gleanings. And, and what the verse says, well, I'll, I'll read it for you. It says, and when you reap the harvest of your land. So uh, you got the picture. It's your land. You put the seed in. You cultivated it. You have a right to it. It is yours. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor. Let me give you the next words in the text. This, by the way, is the word of God. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. What's a sojourner? For the foreigner. You shall leave them for the immigrant, and you shall not ask how he got there. You will simply leave it for him. I am the Lord your God. That's how important it is. It says when you, when you, you've got a field, you don't harvest it to the edges. You leave something there so some pe other people can come in and they've got work to do whereby they can feed their families. You know, there's a little bit left over as you're going across and you're, and you're harvesting it and there's, there's gleanings left behind you. You leave it there. Sure, it's yours. 
but I'm the Lord your God, and I have a claim on it, and I claim it for the sake of the poor. You leave it there. That's the law of the gleanings. Now, that does not mean that the next time you mow your lawn, you're going to leave a strip of unmowed grass around it. Okay, that, so your neighbor has to come over and mow. That, that's not what it means. But what it means is that whatever has been entrusted to your care doesn't belong to you. It belongs to our Father in heaven, who by his grace has called us through his Son by the power of his Holy Spirit to express the great grace of God by giving and leaving for the poor and the needy and the dispossessed. And that's why Paul was eager to do it, so he could worship the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I just pray that you would keep us from being miserable misers, people who are so good at calculating and very poor at giving. Father, I pray that you'd give to us the courage of faith to put everything in our hands at the disposal of your grace and your will so that somewhere on earth people will lift up their eyes and give you the glory because of what you've done through us. Father, I pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit on the folks in this room that you would give to each one the burden, the burden for the people you love and a burden to be found obedient before your throne of grace. Father, I pray for the one in this room for whom none of this has made sense because they don't know Christ. Let your Holy Spirit descend. Bring about that conversion of heart and that confession of faith. Father, for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.